Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. Before I continue, on July 26th at 3pm, I'm hosting a Zoom history conference all about the 1913 White Hurricane that hit the Great Lakes. It's a really interesting story, I think you'll enjoy it. It's $5 to register for the 45-minute conference, or free for my patrons. If you'd like to register, just go to CanadaEHX.com and click Register. If you want to be a patron, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to Patreon.com slash CanadaEHX, and there's plenty of rewards for whichever tier you decide to choose. It unites the entire country. It allows you to travel from the Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic Ocean. It is part of our national identity, tied to our history and our heroes like Terry Fox. It is the Trans-Canada Highway, and today I am looking at how it came into being. I will also be playing bits of audio from a Trans-Canada Summer, a 1958 National Film Board documentary about traveling the highway. The highway is so long that it would run from the shores of the Nile Delta in Egypt all the way down to the bottom of Cape Town, South Africa, with a few hundred kilometers to spare. Its distance would cover from the very tip of South America all the way to Honduras. I would go on, but needless to say, it is very long. The desire for a highway that went across Canada actually went back to the very dawn of the automotive era. In 1912, when the first Trans-Canada car trip occurred, which I did an episode on a few months ago, go check it out, it became clear that there was a possibility to have a highway across the country. In 1942, it finally became possible to drive across Canada on Canadian roads, even though most of the roads were gravel and the Big Bend Loop near Revelstoke was closed during the winter. The final stretch of gravel road built was a 246-kilometer stretch in northern Ontario, and the first people to make the drive were R.A. McFarlane and Kenneth McGillivray in 1946. In 1948, work began in negotiating with the provinces to get the highway built, as this CBC News story relates. The Minister of Mines and Resources, Mr. McKinnon, has announced that on December 15th, Dominion and provincial representatives will get together to discuss the establishment of a first-class Trans-Canada Highway. Powell Smiley reports from Ottawa. This conference will concern itself exclusively with matters of policy. For some years, it's been a debatable point whether or not a Trans-Canada Highway actually exists. Back in the early years of the Depression, the federal government, through the Relief Act, offered to underwrite a percentage of the costs of building and improving roads in the provinces, provided those roads formed a continuous route from coast to coast. Accordingly, between 1931 and 1934, each province designated a specific provincial highway or highways as part of such a route, and passed an order in council to that effect. Consequently, the Canadian Government Travel Bureau isn't wrong in stating that motorists may now travel over improved highways from one ocean to the other in Canada, provided the trip isn't attempted in winter, that is. The Big Bend section of the British Columbia portion of the route is closed from the middle of October until the late spring. In comparison with the old corduroy roads of pioneer days, the provincial highways are improved. Considerable work was done on some of them during the war years, but for the most part they're still far from being an attraction to tourists. The federal government wants them to be attractive, hence the coming conference. After it's been decided that the provinces do in fact want a Trans-Canada Highway, and here the point will probably be argued, 
that the federal government should make a grant to the provinces applicable to all the provincial highways, rather than just those sections in the transcontinental system. After that decision has been made, the provincial authorities will be asked to decide what route they want the Trans-Canada Highway to follow within their several boundaries. Then, and only then, will the conversations reach the technical level. There'll be another conference at which the engineers will take over from the administrators and talk about such things as level crossings, grades, curves, and other professional matters. Finally, the federal government will offer to pay a certain percentage of the cost of the project. If a satisfactory financial arrangement is worked out, Canada will ultimately have a cross-country highway along which motor vehicle drivers can travel in comfort. This is Paul Smiley speaking from Ottawa. Three years later, on December 10th, the Trans-Canada Highway Act was passed, and the highway for Canada was ready to be born. Of course, getting to that point was not easy, and it took some strong negotiations between the federal government and the provinces. But in 1950, construction would commence on the highway, and it would be no quick process. In fact, while the Transcontinental Railway only took a few years to build, the Trans-Canada Highway would take much longer. December 10th, 1949, an act to encourage and assist in the construction of a Trans-Canada Highway was passed by Parliament and given royal assent. By agreement reached at a federal-provincial conference, the project will be a two-lane, paved highway. The designated route will be the shortest practical east-west route through each province, consistent with the needs of the provinces and the interests of Canada as a whole. An infusion of $150 million went into this project initially, amounting to $1.6 billion today. That would not be the final cost of the project. The federal government would pay to a maximum of 50% of shared costs for the construction of the road, except in the national park system. Those areas were under federal jurisdiction, and the federal government would pay 100% of the costs. Each section of the highway had its own agreement with the provinces. British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Prince Edward Island signed their agreement on April 25, 1950. New Brunswick signed on May 27, 1950. Newfoundland on June 27, 1950. And Nova Scotia on May 15, 1952. Quebec would sign its agreement on October 27, 1960, the last province to do so. The planning for the project required that the pavement widths be 6.7 metres to 7.3 metres with ample shoulders, bridge clearances, site distances and more. Each province would supervise its own construction and the target date was to finish it by December 1956. But that would not be reached and the project would take longer and cost more by the time it was finished. Construction was put under the oversight of the Department of Resources and Development but in September 1953, the Department of Public Works picked up the project. The first province to complete its section was, not surprisingly, Saskatchewan, which it did in 1957. While all the provinces had roads going across their borders, most, especially in the west, were gravel and had to be upgraded properly to make them safe and usable as a highway. In some areas, the roads were nothing more than a rutted dirt track, or in the case of British Columbia, rocky lanes running alongside mountains. I'm going to go through each province's work to finish the highway, since each province was responsible for its own stretch. 
Along the way, I'll be playing some clips from the National Film Board movie that I talked about, and I'm going to play a series of clips from the CBC in 1960 when Ron Hunka and Doug Brophy traveled on the highway as it was being constructed. Newfoundland. In Newfoundland, which only joined Canada in 1949, the highway would cost $92 million in federal funding and $20 million in provincial funding. The highway would cover 903 kilometers, and Newfoundland would actually have the second longest distance to cover in the construction after Ontario, and the second most difficult terrain after British Columbia. This is the end of the line for us in Newfoundland. We have driven the 595 miles from St. John's, and we are waiting now at Port of Asque to board the William Carson for the 96-mile, six-hour Cabot Strait crossing to North Sydney. Uh, with great stretches of the road not yet built to Trans-Canada Highway standards and construction crews at work, the drive across the province was fairly rough going. But where the road has been graded to TCH standards and where the pavement has been laid down, it's a good example of things to come. Although engineers tell us it will be at least three years before the job is completed. But when it is completed, it will be a luxury to Newfoundland motorists and an invitation to others to come and see one of the real fascinating spots of Canada. With only 500,000 people, it had the second smallest number of people after Prince Edward Island to absorb the costs. In addition, its per capita income was the lowest in Canada. Paving of the highway would finish on November 27, 1965, at Pearson's Peak. The official opening of the highway would happen in 1966, and was attended by Prime Minister Lester B. Pearson. And here is his speech to the crowd. I've listened to your Premier with a feeling of mixed pleasure and apprehension this afternoon. I realize it has my colleague and me to come here as he wished on your behalf to express the appreciation of his government and the people of this province for what the federal government was able to do to bring this great project to a conclusion, the Trans-Canada Highway. And I was happy to acknowledge his appreciation, gave me a glow of satisfaction, a feeling I had been a part of this great work. And then I realized he got us down here for another purpose. <laughs> to see what we could do in the future. Gratitude, you know, consists of a lively expectation of favors to come. And your premier is the leader in Canada of a revolution of rising expectations. So my colleagues who got here too late while they were wandering around in the air, while they were in the air or on the ground, they may not have realized that Mr. Smallwood has committed the federal government to paying 90% of the cost of the paving of all the roads in Newfoundland, the building of a 400-mile improved model Trans-Canada Highway across Labrador, and the building of a tunnel under the Straits of Belle Isle, which will be longer, more magnificent, and more expensive than the tunnel across the English Channel, which has taken 200 years to begin. <laughs> so I think this has been a good day for Newfoundland. <laughs> Nova Scotia. Most of the roads here were improved on and brought up to the standards set out by the Trans-Canada Highway, 
although a huge amount of work was put into linking Cape Breton Island to the mainland of Nova Scotia. It's somewhat debatable whether Cape Breton is now, strictly speaking, an island. The Strait of Canso, one mile wide, used to divide Cape Breton from the mainland of Nova Scotia. It wasn't practical to build a bridge because of the tides and ice jams. But the road must go through, the links must be forged. Here a gigantic link of rock to form the deepest causeway in the world. Mr. Peters, you joined us in North Sydney. You are about to leave us now as we take the ferry over to Prince Edward Island. How far have we traveled in those few days? About 185 miles. Well, now, how much of that is uh, up to Trans-Canada standards? How much is finished? What is existing? I would say roughly 100 miles will be completed by the end of, uh, mostly the end of this year, and certainly by the end of next year. What is the, the total estimated cost here for the Trans-Canada Highway in Nova Scotia? We estimate the cost at roughly $30 million. Well, it certainly comes through very beautiful country, particularly up around Cape Breton and certainly down around this section of the country. Uh, what about that bridge over, over the Great Pador? That, that's uh, rather an interesting piece of construction, I believe. Yes, it'll be the second largest bridge in Nova Scotia and probably the second most expensive, ranking next to the Angus L. Macdonald Bridge across the Halifax Harbour. New Brunswick When the route of the Trans-Canada was planned through New Brunswick in 1950, it did not follow Route 2 via St. John between Fredericton and Sussex, but took the more direct Route 9. Throughout the construction, a number of bypasses and realignments were done to improve Route 2 with federal Trans-Canada Highway funds. Prince Edward Island The smallest province did not have much it needed to do with the Trans-Canada Highway, apart from the upgrading of some roads and improving ferry service to the island. Ironically though, the cost to get the highway up to standards was actually quite expensive at the time, since the highway's base rock had to be shipped into the province across the Northumberland Strait. It's odd now to think that this proud little island refused for five years to enter Confederation, especially since it was here in the capital Charlottetown, that a crucial conference was held in 1864. It led to the joining of the separate provinces into a new nation, Canada. The islanders shrewdly kept out of it until they were guaranteed financial support for their railroad. Today, there's another link binding the island to the nation, the Trans-Canada Highway. You can drive directly from the highway onto the car ferry to the mainland. It's called the Abiquit, the old Mi'kmaq Indian name for their beautiful island meaning cradled in the waves. Our trip uh, through Prince Edward Island was certainly an easy one. The Trans-Canada Highway is completely finished now, except for one bridge, and it is a beautiful drive. Just before we left the island this morning, as a matter of fact, I spoke to Mr. Harry Nason, who was the highways man for the Federal Department of Public Works in this area. Now, this is where we get the uh, ferry at Borden, PEI, to cross over to the mainland. And summarizing the state of the Trans-Canada Highway in PEI, would it be right to say that it is completed, except for, what, one bridge or so? Yes, that's right, Doug. The 71 miles of Trans-Canada Highway in uh, Prince Edward Island that uh, extend, as you know, from Wood Islands uh, in the south through Charlottetown to uh, Borden, uh, is complete, except for the bridge over the Hillsborough River at Charlottetown. Well, now, was it a very difficult job to construct the highway in PEI? 
No, the uh, gently rolling terrain in PEI lends itself to uh, uh, rather rapid construction, and uh, I don't think there are any unusual features or any unusual difficulties involved. What about uh, the cost? I would, I would uh, assume that because of this gentle rolling land, it perhaps is not as expensive here as elsewhere. No, it's, uh, I would say generally about $70,000 a mile would cover the cost of construction here, and uh, those are bargain prices in today's, uh, using today's construction standards. Quebec. In 1950, when the Act was passed, provincial funding agreements were negotiated, and Quebec was able to receive 21% allocation of the road construction budget. A very difficult portion was the tunnel that would go under the St. Lawrence River at the Boucherville Islands near Montreal. The project cost $85 million for one kilometre of highway, equivalent to $560 million today. The tunnel section at Montreal would not be finished until 1967, and it is one of the largest pre-stressed concrete structures in the world to this day. Each of the seven pre-stressed sections of the tunnel were formed in dry dock. When finished, they were 32,000 tons, measuring 110 metres long, 37 meters wide, and 8 meters high. A trench had been pre-excavated in the riverbed, and each section was floated by barge, where crews would build the concrete roadway deck and steel reinforcement inside each section, careful not to tip the barge. Once this was done, the barge would go to the proper location and sink the section of the tunnel until it touched the bottom, 24 meters below the water. Today, this tunnel section carries 130,000 vehicles per day. Ontario Ontario had one of the most developed road systems in Canada by the 1950s, at least in southern Ontario. In 1939, the province had the first intercity divided highway in Canada, running from St. Catharines to Toronto, as well as the first cloverleaf interchange. Various work did have to be done in the province to build the proper highway, and the cost was quite high in some areas, especially the swampy areas of northern Ontario. The 256-kilometre section between Wawa and Sault Ste. Marie was very challenging, with 60% of the distance going through new ground that was usually muskeg. Some sections of muskeg were 15 metres deep, and 25 new bridges had to be built. Thousands of tons of blast rock had to be brought in to form a solid road base, which added to the overall cost. That section of highway would open in September of 1960. And again, it's hello everyone for Doug Brophy, Ken Frost, and myself, Ron Hunkett. We just arrived a very short while ago here in White River, Ontario, and Doug, it's been quite a day. Well, we left Sault Ste. Marie at around 8 o'clock this morning. After about an hour and a half's drive, we pulled up at a construction camp on the side of the road. Now, this was the end of the line for anyone traveling without a pass and an official escort from the highways department. That's right. We uh, picked up our official escort there, a, a four-wheel drive highways vehicle that was prepared to pull us through the bad stretches, and off we went. And actually, Doug, looking back on it now, it was quite an adventure in places. Well, it certainly didn't look uh, as though we were going to have any trouble when we started off in the barricade, a beautiful, smooth stretch of pavement, not a mark on it. Uh, this section isn't open to the public as yet, but I'm afraid it didn't last long. About 10 or 15 miles from the community of Wawa, we saw why the highway's people were so cautious. The pavement ended, and blocking the road, and I use the term loosely, were a couple of giant power shovels, the largest trucks I've ever seen, and a stretch of ground that had less resemblance to a highway than anything I've ever seen before.
giant shovels biting away the rock and soil for what would be road bed really gave us an idea of what a road builder was up against at times. And in our little convoy, we had to pick our way around the boulders, some larger than a kitchen chair, and, and through sand and earth that must have been a foot deep in stretches. I'm glad you were at the wheel there, Ron. Well, I was sorry for a little while, Doug, but actually it worked out very well. I'm sure the uh, engineers of this particular stretch of the Trans-Canada Highway will forgive me for saying that this is by far the uh, roughest uh, day that we've yet been through on this uh, Trans-Canada tour. As you drive the Trans-Canada now, you will come across plenty of roadside attractions. From Husky the Muskie in Kenora, to Mac the Moose in Moose Jaw, but one of the first to jump on this idea was Wawa. Now what about, uh, will the town prepare for the coming of this highway uh, with respect, say, to motels or some sort of tourist attractions? Well, I understand there's already some preparation and there's no doubt that next summer we'll see a great change in the uh, local scene. Wawa in Indian means uh, wild goose, is that correct? Wild goose, and right. I'm fascinated with your idea of uh, inaugurating the, the highway. Would you tell us about it? You mean of setting up this, this monument at the intersection of the highway? Well, this goose will be sitting on an 8-foot base, and the base will be 10 by 15 foot, and the goose will be 18 foot tall and 23 feet long, and it will be at a place where it can be seen from the highway, and there will be signs marking it at uh, different intersections, and it will you'll be known as the land of the big goose. Overall, many areas of the province were getting a proper road for the first time in its history. The uh, drive this morning from the Sioux right up here to uh, White River was something to think about, sir. How difficult was it for you as road builders to get that through? It was very difficult on the start because... Uh, we had 108 miles of virgin territory and practically no access to any part of it except at both ends and in the center at Wawa. The road existed from the Sioux up to Wawa, and I take it from here on in, it's opening a lot of uh, communities that were heretofore inaccessible. Right? Well, the original road uh, was built up to the Agua River, some 51 miles from Wawa. Well, what about the, the, the construction itself, sir? Muskeg, marshes, lots of virgin territory, rock, trees, just about everything conceivable, I suppose. That's right. We had to, The first thing that we had to do was go in and clear the right-of-way all through this 108 miles. Where the road didn't exist, how did you get your equipment in? From the lower end, uh, we started in at the lower end at the Agua River and worked progressively north. The second contract that was let was from five miles north of the Agua, to 15. All contractors' equipment, all our own supplies and everything had to be brought up by barge along the mm -hmm. west shore of Lake Superior. Manitoba. Between 1958 and 1968, most of the provincial highways that formed the route through the province would be designated as Highway 1. The highway was completed in 1962 in the province, only two years after the official opening of the highway in 1960. Pierre de Laverandre and the other voyagers who first looked out over this ample land two centuries ago followed the old Indian trails and in the rivers. Today, ribbons of hardtop stretch from horizon to horizon over the prairie land. Trans-Canada Highway construction standards. Surface, three inches deep minimum, with gravel or cut stone base, hard surfaced. Gravel shoulders of 10 feet maximum height. 
sight distance at least 600 feet in either direction. Hills graded to not more than 8%. Maintenance responsibility of the provinces, except in areas designated as national parks. Saskatchewan. The building of the highway through Saskatchewan was relatively easy, as we see with it finishing before any other province. This is because the highway was built on a nearly straight route over flat land. Now that's not to say it was always easy though. Dumbo clay in some areas would turn to slippery mud when soaked, and a huge amount of gravel underlay had to be brought in to form a stable base. Right now, as we said, we're in Regina, the Queen City, after a beautiful, easy drive over a completely finished highway from Winnipeg. Just a few minutes ago, we spoke to Mr. Flat, the Trans-Canada Highways engineer for both Manitoba and Saskatchewan. Mr. Flat, the highway through Manitoba was everything you said it was, completed straight as a die through that beautiful prairie country. Now that we have arrived in the province of Saskatchewan, what are we in for? What is the distance from border to border? 406 miles. What about the agreement now? When was the highway opened here? It was officially opened by a ceremony in August 1957. Any reason why the, the, the highway out in this province was completed so rapidly? Well, I believe we could consider that the highway construction was less expensive and less difficult, but also the provincial department uh, concentrated on completing the Trans-Canada Highway. And they're to be complimented for that. Alberta. Due to the increase in oil production in the province, many roads were being improved on by the time the Trans-Canada was being put through. In the 1950s, though, all road construction had to include draining culverts, ditches, guardrails, and more to get it up to the code for what the federal government wanted. Once the road reached the mountains and Banff, extra work would have to be done to ensure everything was safe. British Columbia Due to the mountain terrain of the province, there were often very difficult sections to build and upgrade. One of the most difficult parts of the entire project was the route between Golden and Revelstoke, a distance of only 148 kilometers. The snowfall in this area reached 15.2 meters per year, and this presented a great deal of danger to workers and drivers. As a result, snow sheds had to be built along with earth mounds to protect people on the finished highway. The Avalanche Research Group was created by the government in 1953 to locate avalanche zones and recommend defense mechanisms. The work had to be mostly done on skis and was dangerous because of the avalanches. On several occasions, the scientists had to be rescued from avalanches, and thankfully, there were no serious injuries or deaths. Thanks to their work, it was determined that 825 meters of snow sheds should be installed along the dangerous portions of the route. Here in British Columbia, the problems facing the highway builder were enormous. Trans-Canada standards demand all hills graded to not more than 8%. The road must in places be made to cling safely to a mountainside without danger of snow or rock slide. Yet when you've got your stretch finished, it's worth it, leading you down into the beautiful green valleys. In regards to the Kicking Horse Pass near Golden, a highway was built there earlier with two lanes carved between rock faces and steep drop-offs that had hairpin turns and two narrow crossings over the river. This 26-kilometer section of the highway had to be upgraded to keep drivers safe and resulted in three phases of the project. 
The three phases would replace the two river crossings, put in improvements, implement wildlife fencing and crossings, expansion to four lanes, and installing electronic message signs. Another tough section was the 15 kilometers between Field and Golden, which saw 2 million tons of rock removed, along with 2 million tons of soil. When it was done, though, Vancouver was now linked with the rest of Canada by a proper road. Hundreds of thousands of tons of rock to shore up the last buttresses of the highway through the green canyons. And one day, it's through, down through the valley of the Fraser, into a gentler land. Down to the pine stands, to Canada's third largest city, Vancouver. On July 30, 1962, the highway officially opened at Rogers Pass. It stretched 7,821 kilometers from St. John's, Newfoundland to Victoria, British Columbia, although 3,000 kilometers of the highway were not yet paved. Prime Minister John Diefenbaker was on hand for the big event, but there was no singing of O Canada because the Princess Patricia's Canadian's Light Infantry Band and its instruments had taken a wrong turn out of Calgary. Thankfully, it arrived in time for the band to play God Save the Queen. As part of the opening, Diefenbaker patted down a small patch of pavement to finish the highway in front of 3,000 people. The opening was not so much about the work being done, but that this difficult gap of the pass was finished. The ceremony was also relatively near Craigalachie, where the last spike was driven in on the Transcontinental Railway in 1885 by Sir Donald Smith. The opening was also missing two provinces. No one from New Brunswick was able to attend, and Newfoundland boycotted the ceremony because they were angry that the federal government wasn't paying more towards construction, since most of the roads were still gravel. The Premier of British Columbia, W.A.C. Bennett, who was also the third cousin of R.B. Bennett, the former Prime Minister, did not attend the ceremony in his province. He also wanted the federal government to provide more money for the construction, and he had already officially opened the road in the province a month earlier at a nearby stop. At the ceremony, he called it BC Highway 1, and never mentioned Canada in his speech. Here is Prime Minister John Diefenbaker at the opening. This highway, may it serve to bring Canadians closer together, May it bring to all Canadians a renewed determination to individually do their part to make this nation greater and greater still and worthy of the destiny that the fathers of Confederation had expected when through their act of faith they made it possible. And above all, I express the hope and the prayer today this highway will always serve the cause of peace, that it will never hear the marching tramp of warlike feet. The highway between Revelstoke and Golden would see its traffic increase tenfold immediately after it opened. This was because the small section of highway cut off 160 kilometers and seven hours of travel time off taking the old Big Bend Loop through the area. 
While the highway opened in 1962, it was officially finished in 1971, 21 years after it started. In 1956, the goal was to have 10 provinces connected by paved road by 1967, the year of Canada's centennial. In 1955, most of the roads designated as the Trans-Canada were still gravel, and when the highway officially opened, 50% of it was still gravel. By 1967, though, most of the highway would be paved. Upon its completion, the highway was the most lengthy, uninterrupted highway in the entire world, and at that point it had cost $1.4 billion to finish, or $9.2 billion today. I will close out this episode with some interesting facts about the Trans-Canada. The highest point on the Trans-Canada is the 1,627-meter mile-long section of the Kicking Horse Pass. As with the building of the Trans-Canada, provinces are responsible for maintaining the road except in the national parks. For a section to qualify as the Trans-Canada, it has to be paved and be at least 6.7 meters wide and have shoulders that are 3.3 meters wide on each side. And in the Banff National Park section, there are 38 wildlife underpasses and 6 wildlife overpasses. I hope you enjoyed that look at the Trans-Canada Highway, and if you did, please leave a rating and review. You can reach me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash canadaehx. And you can visit my website where I have hundreds of articles on Canada's history. Just go to canadaehx.com. Information comes from Canadian Encyclopedia, Britannica, TransCanadaHighway.com, Maclean's, Canada.ca, TransBC.ca, Construction Connect, Wikipedia, SkiBanff.com, The Government of British Columbia, TAC-ATC.ca, CBC, and the National Film Board. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.